Have you ever had a moment where you tried to cover up a mistake you made? Have you ever tried to cover up the fact that you did something wrong? None of you want to admit it in church. Okay, this is a safe space. It's okay. I, I had a, a, a van one time. Um, I recently had to buy a new car, uh, well, used, but I, I bought a used van a number of years ago as my family was growing, and I sort of thought, oh, okay, I think I got an okay deal. I think this is an okay vehicle. And as months progressed, I one day was walking around, and I noticed kind of around the bumper there was a drip of paint uh, that was the same color as the vehicle. I realized what had happened at some point, this vehicle has been in an accident, and it was touched up, and not very well, and I hadn't noticed before. I had a lot of issues with that vehicle, uh, and someone had tried to cover up a problem without admitting it, right? And, you know, that happens in our lives, in our worlds. People don't want to often admit when they've done something wrong. They don't want to admit that they've made a mistake or something that's maybe harmed another person. And I wonder how you respond when it's you that's messed up, when you've missed the mark, when you've lost the plot, as we've been talking about. And today, we're, we're leaning into the very end, we've come to the end of a long speech by Stephen. Stephen is a man who um, was in part of the early church shortly after the time of Jesus, and he was the first person in the life of the church that was killed for his faith in Jesus. And he's accused of, of sort of breaking the traditions and customs of the people, the religious people of the day, and he gives this sort of speech to address that, and by the end of the speech, he's, he's killed. And what Stephen is saying throughout the speech is, hey, You've missed the mark. You've done something wrong. You've lost the plot. And how do they respond? Well, they respond by killing you. How do you respond when someone confronts you and says to you, hey, you've got this wrong. You've done something wrong. You've missed the point. You've lost the plot. Well, how do you respond? Do you respond with humility and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize what I was doing? Or do you double down and say, huh, huh, how dare you? How dare you? This is a, I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. How could you suggest that I, how dare you? You double down. Or do you lean in with humility and say, okay, I need to change course? Well, let's get into the speech a little bit. I want to do a bit of an overview. When I first started talking about this, Three years ago, no, the series has only been 13 weeks up to now, but it might feel like it's been years. But as we first began, I identified that Stephen is actually speaking to the three uh, most powerful central things within their religious faith of the day. He speaks about the land, the promised land that they lived in, the land of Israel that God had provided for them which they valued highly and saw as a representation of God's blessing in their lives. But then he also addresses the law, which they, they said that they held to, that was given to them by God, and they had made just a great priority amongst them. And then uh, he addresses the temple, which they valued really very, very highly. So Stephen is saying, these are the three most important things in your faith today, 
and let me speak about this. Now, the way he does it, you wouldn't necessarily realize what he's doing the entire time. It's not that he says, and now let me talk about the land, or now let me talk about the law. What he's weaving together is the stories of the history of the people of Israel in such a way that he is showing them in a new light, giving them a new perspective, and helping them to see them uh, see where they have lost the plot along the way. Now, with the land, it takes up the first 43, 44 verses where he's addressing it, but it won't be obvious that he's speaking about the land. Instead, what we see, for a people that are consumed with the importance of the land, what we see is most of the speech is about the history of Israel outside of the land of Israel. Most of the stories he's telling reveal that God was active amongst them when they weren't even in the place they are now. And so what he's saying is, you have made this a major part of your faith, and yet your faith, it is not necessary for your faith to exist. So what I've summarized in this way is I've said, God was active, he was attentive to them, he was present to them, he was blessing them, and he was rescuing the people for centuries outside of the land. And, furthermore, he even says, and in our history, our people, when they were on the way to the land that God provided, that you are now so thankful that you're in, your people, our people, didn't even want it. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to where they were slaves. So he says, you've made this such a big, important part of your faith now, and yet so much of our faith has existed outside of this place, and you people didn't even want it in the first place. And so he's critiquing the place and position that they have given to the land in terms of the then he goes and he begins addressing Moses and the law. And what he focuses on is, he says, God gave, and in quotes, he says, life-giving words. He's given you all this instruction. But in our history, the moment that it was given, the people broke it. You say now that you value it so much, you're just so happy to have this law and you seek to honor it in every way. But as a people, throughout our history, from the very beginning, we rejected it. And it didn't even, the you know, it had only just begun. God had only said the word, don't make any idols. And the first thing that they do is make an idol. So he critiques the position of the law as so important to their faith that says, well, you know, it wasn't that important to your ancestors. Those life-giving words that God gave, people deliberately disobeyed and they turned to an idol. And then what we've focused on more in the past few weeks is the temple or tabernacle initially. But we focused on how they had made this a great part of their faith, but what God has said to them is, you don't actually need it. God wants to be present to us as a people, and yet God doesn't need a building. God doesn't need a temple. In fact, it's it's uh, a, a quote of God's own words, God's speaking that Stephen uses that says, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. So what Stephen does is critique the three central things of their faith and says, none of them are that important. 
You've made these what your faith is all about and none of them actually matter. You don't need the law to have this faith because you didn't want to keep it anyway. You don't need the land because most of our faith experience and history existed outside of the land. And God doesn't need this temple that you revere so much. And to them, these are like these are the most important things. And he's saying they're just not important. You can imagine how that critique might have landed on their ears. How would you have responded in this moment if someone came in and said, oh yeah, that red dirt? Ugly. Anne of Green Gables? What a brat. Potatoes? Blah. Right? You can see why they'd be insulted. You can see why they'd take offense. And yet, are those really the most important things that we would say are here in Confederate Island? Or are they just part of the picture in the land? So Stephen critiques what they have made to be too important. Let's look at it another way with the people that the speech is centered around. On the next slide, you know, we, we've, we've taken 13 weeks where we've gone through all kinds of different people, but really, if you look at it, there's, there's major sections that are focused on specific stories, and some of the other people that we have highlighted along the way within the speech are really just to help flesh that out, but it's, it's kind of formed around three initially. First, there's Abraham. Abraham is where it all began. Abraham started their family. And remember, he was an old man without any children. When God says, you're going to have a, not only one child, but you're going to have a great nation come from you. I'm going to give you many blessings. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to provide for you. And as a, a sign of this covenant, all I need you to do is acting in faith to permanently mark your body with circumcision to say that you are a part of this. You're in this. And that you need to follow me. And Abraham follows God. And Abraham is circumcised. Now that's, that seems like a funny thing that I've, I've highlighted that here on the screen. But in a moment you'll see why that specific detail is important. So what, this, what the story begins with is Abraham. And how he followed God because of his faith. And God blessed him. But as the story quickly unfolds, there's a, a major section around the person of Joseph. And Joseph was one of the sons of Israel, who now has shaped their whole nation. There's 12 sons. They, we call them the patriarchs. The 12 tribes of Israel come from them. And what Stephen reminds them is those patriarchs rejected Joseph, who is one of your greatest heroes today. Your patriarchs, your ancestors, rejected the one who was so mighty within Egypt. He began ruling, he provided, he cared for, and he blessed Everybody, so the patriarchs rejected him, but God favored him. And so begins a pattern in the story, as Stephen is telling it, of how when God acts, people reject what God is doing. Instead of living out of faith like Abraham, over and over again, the people of Israel act in rebellion and rejection of what God is doing. We see it again in the next major section, which is focused around Moses. And we hear multiple times throughout that story how Israel rejected Moses. And yet, God chose him and sent him to save them. So again, there's this pattern that's being developed, this picture 
this becoming a little more clear that when God works and when God does something, people reject it. And they focus on the wrong thing. And Moses himself, as Stephen quotes it here, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. So even Moses was saying, there's going to be another person coming who's even greater. You need to watch for that person. You need to look for that person. Be prepared for the coming of this person. And when that person arrived, as Stephen says, they didn't, they didn't receive him. They rejected him. That person was Jesus. That's the part we're coming to now in the speech. When they get to Jesus, this one who that was told, the one that was sent by God to save them, the one who came as the Messiah, what did they do with him? They betrayed and murdered him. What we see here is Stephen is rebuking them. He's saying, the things that you have held to aren't as important as you think they are. And the way that you have responded to God throughout your history and even today is not in receiving what God is doing, but it's rejecting it and rebelling against it. You have missed the point. You have lost the plot. You are outside of what God is doing. These are strong words. And I want you to listen to them now. In the next slide, you see these words. You see how strongly this begins to convey. Reading from the New Living Translation, there's one word that I think is actually not translated well in that version. Most other versions use the word uncircumcised, which you will see relates back to Abraham. I'm inserting it here. Um, it's, it's in place of the word heathen. Uh, but listen to how strongly Stephen brings this whole speech to a conclusion. He's just finished talking about the temple and quoting God saying that he doesn't need a building made by human hands. And then he says this, You stubborn people, you are heathen or uncircumcised at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, who you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Stephen is speaking strongly against them. He's in opposition to the way they have lived, in opposition to the things they have chosen to do, opposition to how they have resisted God. And you can imagine how this falls upon their ears. This is strong language. Heathen. Death. You're uncircumcised, which is a way of saying you aren't even a part of the family of Abraham. Where the story all began in faith, marked permanently by faith and the covenant of God's blessing, you aren't even part of it. It's like you're uncircumcised. It's like you've had nothing to do with what God has covenant promised all along. He says, you are outside the family of God, and you think you're an insider. You're outside of what God is doing, and you think you've got it all together. You're outside of everything that God wants to do in the world here, and you think you are the best. You're missing the point. You've lost the plot. 
There hasn't been a single person that God sent that you listened to. Throughout history, whenever God tried to get your attention, you ignored him. Or worse, you went even farther to resist those people and hurt them and persecute them, even kill them. And they were all trying to point you to God himself, and you instead focused on all these other things. You focused on good things, but not God. You focused on all these other things that seem so godly, but aren't God. And you made a big deal about them instead of making a big deal about who God is amongst you. So much so that when God himself shows up in Jesus, you missed it. And not only did you miss it, it's not like you just ignored it or you weren't paying attention. You actually actively opposed God and you killed Jesus. And if you won't listen to the prophets, if you won't listen to God himself, you won't listen to the voice of angels, who will you listen to when you recognize that you're wrong? Will you even acknowledge that you're wrong? Will you even notice that you have made a mistake? You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. How would you respond at that moment if someone was telling you that you had totally missed what God was doing among you? How would you respond if someone rebuked you that firmly and said, you're a heathen. You're not a part of this family. You're outside of all of this. How would you respond? I think some of you, if we're honest, myself maybe even included, I say, well, I wouldn't have missed Jesus. Like, how dumb are they? Like, all the miracles he did, he was amazing. I wouldn't be that dumb. There's no way I'd miss out on what Jesus, he's obviously a powerful speaker. I, I would have noticed, I would have paid attention. I would have listened to him. I would have said, oh, he's, there's the Messiah right there. I would have noticed day one. I'm pretty good at this. I've got a good feeling about people. I'm pretty good at reading people. I don't want to brag too much, but there's no way I would have missed it. But you know, Jesus told a story and he talked about how he determines who belongs to him and who doesn't. He talked about it in Matthew 25, separates sheep from the goats, those who follow him as the shepherd and those who don't. And he says, you cared for me and you loved me in many different points. And they said, when did we even see you? But when you visited me, when you visited someone in prison, that was me. And gave a cup of cold water to somebody who was thirsty, that was me. So even people that know Jesus often don't see Even those who love him and want him don't always recognize where he is in the world. But many of us are so, oh, I would never have missed Jesus. Well, I got a pretty good eye. I got a good eye for these things. My read on the situation is pretty good. But Jesus addresses that as well with similar people. In the next slide we see this. In Matthew 23, he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. People who seem like they've got it all together. Who seem like they would be close to God and know God's voice and recognize God's activity. And he says this, again in very strong terms. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. 
hypocrites. For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. Jesus probably didn't sound as snooty as I just made that. But we think, ah, I would know better. I would never do that. I would I would recognize Jesus, you know, if we're honest. We, we think we would never be that dumb. We would never be that foolish. But Jesus says, it has been happening all along through history. People have been ignoring what God is doing. People aren't attentive. They don't recognize his voice. They don't recognize his leading. And worse, they try to cover it up and make it seem better when they've made mistakes. Rather than acknowledging they've made mistakes, they build a monument to them. And rather than saying we've messed up, they go and they bring dead flowers and lay them on the monuments and graves and try to make it seem better than it is. And Jesus says, hypocrites. Hypocrites make it look better than it is, but it's dead. Hypocrites that you are wrong and so us outside of what God is doing and then try to make it look okay. You cover it up, you double down, you lean into your own wrongdoing and sin and you don't turn back to God. You try to make it look good on the outside, but inside you're wasting away. Inside you have lost the plot. And really, if we're honest, are we any different today? Are we really any different? The next slide here. I want to take you now to Galatians chapter 3. And what's happening here is that a man named Paul is writing about what it means to be a true son of Abraham. Now, Stephen has said to them, you're uncircumcised. It's like you're not part of the family of Abraham. You're not part of the blessings that God wanted to give to Abraham and his people. So now Paul is going to tell us what it means to actually be part of that family. He's going to bring greater clarity to what's happening. Now, what's significant about this moment? What's significant about this moment is that Paul was there when Stephen was killed. At that time, his name was Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel, who went down spectacularly badly. And when he was there, he held the coats of the men who killed Stephen, stoning him to death. And he fully agreed with everything they did. He was a man of great faith. He was a man who was deeply committed and passionate about following God and his religious beliefs. And he was glad to see Stephen die because Stephen opposed and rejected the culture that he was a part of, the tribe that he subscribed to. Then Paul saw the light. And he was confronted by the person of Jesus. His life changed. He recognized he had gone the wrong way and he had done wrong. He hurt many people, maybe even killed some people, like Stephen. 
And instead of doubling down, and instead of leaning into his wrongdoing, instead of painting over the problem, or putting dead flowers on a monument, he humbly repented and turned to Jesus. So much so that as his life changed, he took on a new name and he started calling himself Paul. And he writes this about what it means now to be a true son of Abraham, a true, a true child of God. He says this, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. What's that blessing? It was this personal relationship with God. It was this covenant with God that God would take care of him, that God would provide for him, that God's love would endure through generations because of his faith. We can have that in Jesus. And then Paul continues. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. All those blessings, that covenant promise that God gave to Abraham is something that you can experience now because of faith in Jesus. What Paul knows what he says about all these cultural things that are no longer important. He says it doesn't matter about your nationality, your cultural, your social standing, slave or free. It doesn't matter even if you're male or female. There is no standing, there's no status, there's no identity that's more important than that of Jesus in you. And when you have faith in Jesus, nothing else matters more because that is life. Everything else, as good as it may be, as good as it might seem, as godly as it could be, is nothing compared to God himself. All of the things that you do in your life, all of the things that you have, none of them matter if Jesus isn't at the center. All the colored lights in a building that doesn't honor Jesus don't amount to anything. Your career, no matter how good you are at your job, no matter how much money you make or how much money you give away to the poor, or all the good things you do on a Saturday morning volunteering somewhere, none of those really matter unless Jesus is at the center of it. And you can keep pursuing those things, and they can be good, but they're not God. And if God doesn't have first place in your heart, if He isn't the center of your life and identity, then all the other things will pass away. And Stephen knocks down the three big things that all of his fellow Israelites were clinging to as so important. And he says, none of those things, the land, the law, the temple, none of those matter unless God is here the center of it all. None of the things that you hold on to your life will ultimately give you satisfaction or produce life for you in the end, if God isn't at the center 
Jesus came and was hailed as king and yet was rejected days later. Where does Jesus stand in your life? Does he stand as king? Or is he rejected and betrayed? How do you respond to the idea that Christ must be more important than anything else? And that the ways you have made other things more important than him is just an act of idolatry? How do you respond when you recognize you've gone the wrong way? You've lost it. I want to take you just to this last slide, a reflection from the story. Are you trying to make something dead seem better than it is? Like putting flowers on a grave? Or is your life centered around an empty tomb? Flowers on a monument to something dead and destroyed? We're celebrating at the place that represents a life that is eternal, that is greater than even death, that can't be taken from you. What is at the center of your heart? the center of your choices, the center of your life. Are you trying to put lipstick on a pig? Flowers on a monument or a grave? Or is your life centered around the living, eternal Jesus who is above? Don't settle for good. Look and pursue after God and his goodness is yielding. Jesus would say in his famous Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Make God the first priority in your life and all the other details, all the other good things will fall into place. Pursue those things first, but God's second, you've lost the whole thing. What would it mean for you to make that change today? But it's not too late. It's not too late to put Jesus at the center of the story. It's not too late to make him the greatest priority to turn from the things that are dead, but might look nice, and make his empty tomb the focus of your life today. Would you do that? Or would you resist? Will you resist with the Holy Spirit what God is doing amongst us today? Or will you humbly receive an ongoing choice for all of us to make Jesus king above it all. And so I pray today that you would know Jesus as king above it all.
Jesus, help us to see you in your glory, standing above everything else. Help us to place you in the highest position of importance within our our lives and to allow nothing else to come before you. Help us not to lose the plot, but to, to enter into this wonderful, glorious story that you have invited us to be part of and to see the life of God fully alive within us and through us, to see it change us and transform us into new people. To rightly order all the good things in our life after you at the first. Jesus, would you, as you come into this place and as you come, as you celebrate uh, this Palm Sunday, this day where you enthroned as king, would you be our king? Would you rule and reign within us? Would you allow your kingdom life to empower us to greater heights, that your spirit within us would make us new, that you would breathe new life into us, that we would be able to not only live for you, but show your life to others, they would know you as well. Jesus, help us to turn from the things we've held on to and cling to, and instead reach out our hands for you alone. To gather ourselves around the empty tomb rather than the monuments to death and destruction that we try to make look better than they are. Jesus, we honor you today. We celebrate you. Help us to put you at the center of it all and to see your glory amongst us as we cry out, Hosanna, you, God, you save. Thank you, Jesus, that you save. In your name we pray.